You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everybody. Peter Maravallis here. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual extension of the City Lights events calendar. As is customary, at the outset of each event, I'd like to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We would like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Tonight, we are delighted to welcome back into the house Curtis White, celebrating the publication of his new book, Transcendent Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse, published by our friends over at Melville House. In Transcendent, Curtis White examines the current schism in Western Buddhism. He makes a compelling argument against the growth of scientific and corporate dharma, particularly as experienced in Stephen Batchelor's secular Buddhist movement. Curtis White asks what we want of Buddhism. He interrogates the move to make Buddhism resemble corporatism and neuroscience, embracing a culture that recognizes only capitalist and science things versus a Buddhism that still provides a refuge from a very debased world of money and objects. So Transcendent is nothing short of a call for the re-enchantment of Buddhism in recognition of a living world defiant of our current world of climate catastrophes, pandemics, and social collapse. Curtis White is a novelist and acclaimed cultural critic whose works include Memories of My Father, Watching TV, The Middle Mind, and more recently, The Science Delusion, and We Robots. His essays have appeared in such journals as Harper's and Tricycle. He has taught English at Illinois State University, is the founder with Ron Suknik of FC2, a publisher of innovative fiction run collectively by its authors. He makes his home in Port Townsend, Washington. Joining him tonight in conversation will be Cheston Knapp. Cheston Knapp is a writer, editor, and photographer. He's the author of Up, Up, Down, Down, a collection of essays. He was the managing editor of Tin House Magazine and the executive director of the Tin House Summer Workshop. <coughs> Exhibits of his photography have appeared at the Blue Moon Camera and Machine and Blue Moon Sky Gallery in Portland, Oregon. He makes his home with his wife and son in Portland, Oregon. So before we begin, I would like to let you know we're going to be posting links in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard with which you may purchase copies of Transcendent. Uh, we'll also be featuring a Q&A towards the end of the evening. So please do post your questions and comments in that same chat function. So join us now in giving a warm welcome to Curtis White and Cheston Knapp. Gentlemen, welcome to City Lights. Such a pleasure to have you back with us. Thank you very much. It's good to be here, even if virtually back in my city. <laughs> uh, I, I, so yeah, you know, I want to I want to thank uh, City Lights for uh, the many times it's it's hosted me, and for generally for being there when I was young. The first here here's a fun fact: uh, the first public reading that I ever did was at at City Lights in 1970. I read, I think, two or three poems at an open mic session that was uh, sponsored by City Lights. So uh, you've always been in my heart. Um, And I also want to thank uh, Cheston for taking the time to come out this evening, come out virtually. I can see his, uh, his avatar right next to my I guess that's my avatar too. I'm not actually really here, am I? <laughs> um, so I thought I would do uh, a really short reading to get us off. The book is, is uh, I suppose, not surprisingly, not a conventional book. It's a collection of essays, but there's a wide variety in the type of essays that are in the book. Some of them are analytic and critical, uh, and some of them are playful, lyrical, poetic. Um, so the, the, it, it sort of begins with the more uh, critical and analytic stuff. And then the book develops towards something that uh, I think it's uh, my attempt to show how to go inside of how art in particular has always given us access to the transcendent. 
So I'm just going to read a couple pages from uh, the prologue to the book. It's called uh, The Hard Problem of Art. I was recently listening to Father John Misty's first album, Fear Fun, on Spotify, and I noticed something that intrigued me. The songs I liked best were, by a wide margin, the favorite songs of many millions of other listeners. Nancy from now on had 52 million listens. Hollywood Forever Cemetery Sings had 40 million listens. But most other tracks on the album had only 4 to 7 million listens, so I asked myself, why is that? Not, why do the songs have different counts, but why am I in such complete agreement with millions of other listeners about what the most worthy songs are on this album? Perhaps it's that the songs with smaller numbers are a reflection of how many people have listened to the entire album straight through, and that the staggeringly larger numbers represent repeat listens, many repeat listens. These songs are on heavy rotation. They are algorithmic hits. So I wondered, what is it about those songs that makes people want to listen to them again and again? Ordinarily, we might explain it by simply saying they're better or that we love that song so much. Or we might say, as many a music reviewer will, that they are the best cuts, as if that explains something. Or we avoid the problem by believing these numbers don't reveal anything other than the arid fact that for a short while, the songs trended or went viral or were shared on many playlists, a regular contagion of enthusiasm that is otherwise meaningless, a mere epiphenomenon of the digital age. Or could it be the more complicated idea that those songs are more popular because of neurology, that quite on their own, our brains experience major keys as positive and energetic and minor keys or flatted keys like D flat as introspective and sad. And a few of Misty's songs just happen to hit the neurotransmitter sweet spot. And so the skillful manipulation of major and minor keys from which the Beatles crafted song after song, as in I'll Cry Instead, which moves so cunningly between G major and a B minor bridge, can produce a song that has been enjoyed for half a century and counting. In other words, the popularity of certain songs is only about a sort of biological demagoguery, our neural wiring saying, you will like this song, a pleasure pill provided courtesy of dopamine. Maybe that's what we mean when we say, that song is dope, man. Or is it possible to say that there is something mysterious happening within music? including popular music, something that surpasses easy understanding. Is it that Hollywood Cemetery has soul? Does it have what Jack Kerouac called it, the ineffable, unknowable, unnameable moment in a sax solo where the jazz soars, finds a certain note and holds it, hoping never to let go? Is it that this quality of it unites us all somehow, and that this unity is reflected even in Spotify's debased number chasing. Why does it feel to us that listening to this music is not something that we do, but something that happens to us? In which case, it's not about numbers or brain chemistry at all. It's about Chuck Berry's Dionysian roustabout song, rock and roll music, dancing, drinking from wooden cups, listening to my man wail on the sax, everybody shook up, or consider the experience of singers in the gospel choir. There's nothing mysterious in their singing. It's right there. The choir feels that spirit moving through it, and they're right. It is spirit welling up, spilling over, and put into our laps. All right, I guess that's where I come in. <laughs> Ta-da! Uh, we're clapping for you. That was yeah, great. Uh, virtual ovation is amazing. It's yeah, <laughs> really thrilling. I'd stand up, but I don't want to Jeffrey tube in the place. Um, so we, we <laughs> we're gonna start. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about how, um, and I think people are here because of the long first chapter, largely, right? That. 
diagnosis what you see as a problem within the Buddhist community. Not being a Buddhist, practicing Buddhist myself, um, I'm I'm curious to hear how your issues with a with a kind of um, movement toward productivity geared Buddhism uh, sort of frustrated you and maybe seems to have led to the writing of a, a long critique of, um, I guess, Stephen Batchelor is the sort of main culprit of an atheistic Buddhism. Could you talk about that and, and the mindfulness movement and maybe like how you see that as a thin development within Buddhism? Sure. Yeah. Um, the essay that Cheston is referring to is the first essay in the book, and it's called Beyond the Database Buddha. And it, it you know, my presence within Buddhism it ha has been going on since uh, uh, for the last 40 years. I was introduced to it uh, at the Zen Center in San Francisco. Um, and in that time, uh, it, I have, you know, slowly grown as a Buddhist. And, and in the last few, the last decade and a half, say, it has really felt like a, a, a part of my life that is extremely important. It's a real presence in my life. Um, and so th that essay took me probably 10 years to write because I kept starting it and stopping it and starting it and thinking, I came so close to throwing it away any number of times just because I didn't know what my place was within the community to launch a critique of something that is so popular now, namely mindfulness-based stress reduction, secular Buddhism, and the corporate Buddhism of Google, uh, the Search Inside Yourself Institute, and Amazon, Amazon, it's the Amazon Health uh, Program. Um, so I was never quite sure what my place was in relation to that, even though I was deeply suspicious of it. Be deeply suspicious because I sort of know the long history in the West of science's relationship to the arts and to religion in particular. Um, it hasn't been a good relationship, needless to say. Uh, but for the going back to, I suppose, uh, at least to Darwin and Thomas Huxley, otherwise known as Darwin's bulldog, the argument was that it's okay to have religion in the English classroom uh, as long as it has first been edited by the sciences. Later in the century, you had uh, um, the philosophy of August Comte who created uh, positivism. And his argument was, was basically that, well, first there was religion, the, the religious era, then there was the metaphysical era by which he meant uh, philosophers like Kant and Hegel but he also meant, I think, the arts. You know, who has the right to make a truth claim was his basic question. And then the final era, which makes the other two eras, the religious and the metaphysical, irrelevant, was the science era. So that continued into the 20th century, as we know, through neopositivism, uh, the work of er, the early work of Wittgenstein and Bertrand Russell and then into analytic philosophy, which is still dominant in the Anglo-American uh, university, and most recently in the work of uh, the so-called new atheists, like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris, and more, more recently, um, Stephen Batchelor. So uh, I examined very closely, and it's not possible for me to reproduce that the argument that I make, especially of, of Batchelor's book, um, called Beyond Buddhism, by the way. Uh, but the the thing in general that most irritated me about uh, that whole history, but the secular Buddhists in particular, was their insistence, their their almost their brusque, their offhand uh, insistence that there is no beyond. Everything's physical. Everything's mechanical. If there's something called consciousness, the uh, it will be explained by neuroscience. If there's something uh, uh, that seems to us like uh, the spiritual world, that can all, that will also be explained uh, through neuroscience. So, the idea that there 
that there is no beyond struck me as uh, not only wrong, but unhelpful to people in the present, in particular in the present, when we have so many crises going on, who could certainly use uh, the refuge offered by uh, a sense of the spiritual or the transcendent um, just for the purposes of getting through their, their days. But the main argument I make about transcendence in the book is that it's it's nothing special in particular. It's very ordinary, um, beginning with what I call everyday, everyday transcendence. Uh, so I say that we couldn't get through a day <laughs> in our lives without transcendence because, uh, you know, we think about we love people. But what does love mean? It doesn't mean anything. No one has an idea what love or beauty or the mind are. These are these are words that are markers for something that we don't know, and yet they're totally. It's mystical. I mean, the, the way that uh, William James described mysticism uh, was that a, a mystical experience is something that's ineffable. That is, you can't really explain it, but all important. And in the same way, you know, the love that we feel for. Our, our our families or even for our pets uh, or the natural world uh, or art um, that love is ineffable we can't explain it and uh, uh, so that's a large part of the reason why I I, I wanted to uh, write a book about transcendence even though um, <laughs> I have no particular religious or philosophic expertise in the area I'm just a what I think is a lively mind trying to explain things to myself. So that essay was really written for myself trying to explain things. Yeah. One of the um, more compelling things to have watched in this sort of suite of books that you've written over the past maybe eight years is to see you sort of not bat an eye at a um, lack of expertise or like uh, they, your willingness to tilt at things that you might have otherwise felt inhibited by. So can you talk a little bit about your, what I see as like a, a, a sort of reveling in your own sort of sense of freedom and maybe how that's related to the, to the book? Um, yeah. You seem to be playing and, and riffing in these, this book and in the last few, um, sort of more freely. And I, I just wonder if that's grown out of your Buddhist practice or, um, yeah, just if you could speak to that for a little, yeah, speak to that. Yeah. Um, I do, th I think what you're saying is, uh, is accurate. Uh, I'm sort of an, uh, a, a critic of, of the idea of expertise in general. Uh, there was just an essay published last week in Salon Magazine, online magazine, which has attracted quite a bit of attention, uh, about the Buddhist cult of expertise. So uh, someone like Rick Hansen, uh, author of Neurodharma, can write a book and there'll be eight pages of, of blurbs from any number of uh, very recognizable recognizable names like Jack Cornfield, uh, Sharon Salzberg, etc. And uh, everything, everybody is carefully labeled with a doctor or MD or psychologist. Um, so it's as if they're saying that these are not only blurbs, but they're expert blurbs. Um, so what, I, you know, my history is simply the history of a, of a, a writer with, uh, uh, I hope, what is a, a lively mind. And uh, um, I've always been, <laughs> I've always, I've always, well, you know, on the one hand, I'm a cult, I'm a critic, and I'm a, I think I'm a pretty good ideology critic and a close reader of text. But on the other hand, I'm very much captivated by the history, uh, that history, part of the history of art, which is which is playful, and in literature that means going back to Rob Lay's Gargantua and Pantagruel, and Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy, and uh, some of the modernist writers, the, uh, like Italo Calvino uh, or um, uh, Flann O'Brien, writers who uh, foregrounded very much uh, their the, the idea of play. 
and it seems to me that uh, that the, uh, the the attraction of 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 the of the Buddha's thinking for me is that there was a sense in which he he too was was playful. Um, the play uh, of and I, I once heard a, a definition of Buddhism as the play of energy in the void. And I said, you know, we have a, a void of meaning, right? And so I say, yeah, that's how we that's how we do it. We play. And uh, um, most of the attention for this book is going to that first analytic essay, which is really quite different essay from the ones that follow, which are more playful, which are more uh, spiritual in a sense, certainly more lyrical. But you can kind of tell that from uh, the introduction that I just read, that I like to play with language um, and that I find it, uh, I find it um, endearing the, uh, the, the capacity of language to make music. <laughs> music plays a big role in the book. And uh, especially as you sort of align it with the ineffable and um attempt to carve a space out for it as a as a this sort of proxy experience of um not nirvana but some sort of communication beyond language so, um I, I to go back for a second to sort of align the critical analytical with with the move towards the arts to founding the sort of you know, in, in I was thinking of Herzog, Moses Herzog wrote a book called Romanticism and Christianity. And I kind of feel like um, this book could have had an alternate title of Romanticism and Buddhism. Right. <laughs> you know, there is a very, uh, there, there's a strain of the Romantic movement, particularly in the, in the English poets, that you trace um, the West, particularly America's welcoming of the, uh, of Buddhism to these romantic poets could you speak because that's kind of the crux for me of like mm. how uh how the arts and buddhism align in the book is through right. the, um expansive sort of you know romantic move could you could you talk about that for a second yeah uh a central question that i uh ask in the book is is um you know science says that buddhism should be based upon science that's what American Buddhism or, or, or these characters that I've been talking about uh, describe it. Um, but uh, I'm more interested in this question, not basing Buddhism upon the arts, but asking this question. Why was it that we seemed so open to Buddhism when it arrived on our shores in the 50s and 60s through people like D.T. Suzuki or Shonru Suzuki. Uh, why, why did it feel as if Buddhism was something that had been returned to us? And, and we were sort of rejoicing in the rediscovery of something that we'd already known. And so my argument is that one of the reasons it felt like that is because, in fact, we had been uh, working with something very like it. And the, and the counterculture in particular, they knew it well. And that is the, the tradition or the lineage of romantic poetry, starting with William Blake, an obvious uh, suspect here, uh, but moving through the English poets as well, and the German philosophers like Schelling, uh, up through Nietzsche and uh, the modernists. Um, so, you know, uh, I, again, it's... Um, it's a long argument, uh, uh, but it and it's done in some detail. But the general thrust of it is that of it is that um, we uh, the the arts and, and romanticism in particular served as what they call a dharma gate. It, we moved through it uh, in order to uh, to welcome Buddhism. Which isn't at all to say that Buddhism is dependent in any way on on the arts, but it's how it's how we made our way to it. My my strong feeling is that Buddhism doesn't need anything. Dharma doesn't need anything. It doesn't need science. It doesn't need the arts. Dharma is dharma, <laughs> but for us, you know, those two things are cultural presence. 
the arts, the tradition of the arts, the tradition of spirit in our country, the, the Concord Transcendentalists, Thoreau and Emerson, et cetera, um, that's a, a really important part uh, of who we are. It's not just this place. It, a lot of people assume that the only way that uh, Buddhism can be assimilated in the West is that, is that if it looks uh, familiar to science. But I say that's nonsense. You know, it wasn't science that welcomed Buddhism on our, to our shores. It was the counterculture. And the counterculture was deeply rooted in the traditions of play and art. Um, that romanticism represented. Yeah, and that's that. It's so fascinating to watch you um, do. You know, you flesh it out in the in the book. This argument. I mean, it's kind of you know asking you to summarize it is a little bit tricky. But um, I mean, one of the the neat things to see, and one of the uh, is is just how this romantic movement has continued right like you still we're still seeing the flowering of what was started by you know Blake and going back and some of the interesting places where it pops up are in people like George Carlin for instance who um one of one of the spirits I think that you're channeling is a kind of pointing out delusions in the same way or pointing out hypocrisies or um just bad faith, right? You're you're looking at and sort of calling a spade a spade, and so I'm wondering, how is it that that Carlin is sort of continuing or carrying the torch? Someone like Carlin carrying the torch yeah. of the romantic movement. Yeah, um, that too is in its own way a very playful essay. The uh, I actually wrote the essay originally um, for Lapham's Quarterly, although it, <laughs> it turned out that appeared in the book before it appeared in Lapham's. Um, but uh, the it was based upon uh, a Netflix uh, series uh, about Carlin. And uh, it was riveting uh, to see Carlin again performing. And uh, he was, uh, you know, in his countercultural days, he was really interesting as a kind of, of uh, court jester, um, anarchistic presence, perfectly in tune with with the counterculture and actually he was what the counterculture needed at at that at a certain point um but later in his career he became uh he became weirdly fatalistic in a kind of spiritualized way and and began to say things about uh, the fate of humanity and the fate of the earth uh that were very very dark or so it appeared um but in other ways, it's not it wasn't too far from some of the things that Buddhism teaches about, for example, uh, transience uh, uh, or uh, what is called anatman or non-self, you know, that, you know, this is all impermanent. This is not, you know, whether we manage to save uh, the cli climate change problem or not, this is all impermanent. And he took his kind of peculiar delight in reminding us of that. Uh, he had a very caustic wit. But on, on the other hand, it was like not that far from uh, the, you know, Buddhism. Yeah. And in this way, the, the sort of his cosmic um, indifference to what happens, right, is, is mm -hmm. what you're saying maybe is, aligns him with Buddhism. Could you could you talk? I mean, I'm I'm interested in this idea that each of us is the instantiation of so each each one mind is the instantiation of mind generally that you get to at several points throughout the book, especially in an essay on Wagner and his de development of the Liebestad love death um, movement. Uh, like, yeah, could you could you talk a little bit about? how whether it's buddhism or the arts that is the um that sort of cuts that sort of walks that knife edge between individualism and the collective not even collective but just sort of general mind yeah uh well, that's a big topic yeah i'm glad these aren't my comprehensive exams <laughs> um but you know i said um it's it's a basic teaching of of buddhism that you know you, you have no um uh 
essential self you know you have no enduring self you, you have a you have a self that was born into causes and conditions in other words born into a kind of collective karma we were all born into uh, a, um, a scientific capitalistic society at a certain moment in time uh, it, for me it was at just after the war in 1951 but um uh so uh, I've lost my train of thought there <laughs> Um, mind small mind big mind oh yeah yeah <laughs> so um so that's kind of disturbing right the concept of emptiness in buddhism is kind of disturbing at first look but what it's you know what it's ultimately arguing is that there's nothing to worry about that uh you know we have to accept that every everything has changed in fact one of the another definition that i heard of buddhism was everything is change um so you know everything is impermanent um but uh, you know not to not to worry because uh, that that impermanence is is cosmic and that you're just part of that cosmic uh change that transience um and there's a sense in which you know I'm looking at you Cheston and I'm you know I'm you there's no difference between us you know we're made of the same things. We have the same destination, you know. <laughs> and uh, there's a sense in which to be a human being is uh, is to to share your human beingness with everybody. It's true. One of the one of the things that I thought of uh, several times throughout the book, especially when you move from the individual to a more collective um samdi like a you know the the uh sort of community of boot practicing buddhists was this um choral piece by a, a woman composer named pauline oliveros do you know the tuning meditation no it's fascinating it's like uh it's it's basically a group of people get together and they take a breath in and sing whatever note they comes to their mind oh. and then on the next breath they sing a note that uh, someone around them sang. Ah. And so you're constantly alternating between wow. these and it ultimately harmonizes in this really incredible movement. Um, but it's unscripted. You just get a bunch of random people together working on that. And my last question just has to do with how as um, a community of... <laughs> mindful concerned arts loving people uh can just can you talk about the sort of social glue that some of these like arts or buddhism can can provide if at all yeah that's um my term was the the samadhi of the collective the calm of the collective and it's what we're really after, I think. Um, how we how we sustain that, how we achieve something like that. Uh, let I, I'll close by um, telling you a story about that's well known in in Buddhism. You know, uh, one day the, the Buddha was invited to give a talk at a particular temple. And um, he went to the temple and and stood be, before the audience of monks. And he didn't say anything. He had a flower. He just held the flower up. And uh, everybody looked at him and sort of said, why is the Buddha talking? He was going to give a Dharma talk to me. What the heck is going on here? Why has he got that flower? And then at a certain point, well into the hour, somebody rose from uh, their seat one person and said and said uh you know ah or as the, they like to say moo <laughs> um and uh, uh and the and the buddha smiled because he knew once again that uh, somebody somebody understood um so you know it, for people who love the arts 
uh, and love or love Buddhism uh, and, and are attracted to that uh, perspective on things, it, it's got to feel a little lonely because the, 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 uh, the good news in the Buddha's talk was that, you know, transcendence is ever available. It's right in front of you. All you have to do is see it. On the other hand, the downside of this story is not very many, regardless of the fact that it's right in front of you, not many people see it. So uh, for those of us who uh, enjoy the spirituality of the transcendence offered by the arts and by um, Buddhism, eh, there aren't, there aren't, it's not a lot of people. And I think that we have to expect that it's not going to be a lot of people. We can grow and we should work towards growing a larger collectivity of the column, the, you know, samadhi, a larger collectivity of wisdom. But in the end, uh, we're probably going to have to take a lot of consolation in what we know between ourselves. That's where the Sangha comes in, the community of believers. That's great. That's a, I mean, thinking of all the people who have gathered here just to, you know, as a curious arts loving, you know, I imagine a lot of people here have Buddhist backgrounds or uh, maybe practices, but um, maybe we can open it up if, if anyone here has, uh, has a question for Kurt about Buddhism or Romanticism or Wagner um, or uh, Mahler. Uh, We've got a, a polymath here who can who can kind of you know help us understand things. Um, yeah, the, I guess the chats the chats open. Um, All right, thank you very much. Thank you, Curtis, uh, for sharing with us. Uh, I'm excited about looking for this. Uh, I was <laughs> lucky to comment on something. My uh, my path to the Dharma Gate down here at the Zen Center of LA. Uh, was via the writings of Kerouac, Ginsburg, and Snyder, primarily. Mm -hmm. um, and they they represent kind of the <laughs> end of the 50s and 60s uh, extension of, of the Romantic uh, movement in, in a very real way. Can you comment yeah. on, on how they, uh, on their influence in this? Thank you. Well, they're obviously very important, right? Uh, they predated the counterculture, um, but they were obviously, <clears throat> you know, the first harbingers of what was going to come, and uh, and and what is continuing. You know, uh, the counterculture has been beaten to death in the mass media, but there, you know, there are a lot of ways in which the counterculture never stopped functioning. You know, you go to a farmer's market, you know, and, or at um, all of these sort of. Uh, Civil rights movements uh, have the have you know because for me the the counterculture was a vortex of energy. It wasn't just hippies. It was a vortex of energies that included feminism and uh, and the civil rights uh, movement, etc. So um, the uh, uh, the beats were just you know so important. I mean, Kerouac was a very compromised character you know but there were he had his moments he had his moments where he saw clearly and um especially in dharma bums and uh and on the road uh, there are a lot of those moments and i i read you the one with uh cassidy there's a couple more cassidy bits in here uh that are just gorgeous because you know the thing that's gorgeous about him is that you know exactly what he's talking about because you have heard that music too. You know, you've heard that music and it, and it took you somewhere that you didn't understand, but that you loved. And it kept you coming back for more, even though it, in some ways, harder and harder to find these days. Um, yes. Was there another one? Yeah. Right there, that one. <laughs> no, we right can't. In. Everyone's got a different screen. So if you want to just speak up, I think that's Sherilyn. Why don't you unmute and give us a, yeah, give us the question. On. Okay, here we go. Hi. Um, so, you know, I sort of 
known Stephen Batchelor like for 20 years, I guess, and, you know, met him way back when. And I guess he, he wrote this book like, you know, The Faith the faith to Doubt. And then he, you know, was kind of talking about agnosticism. Um, and it's like gone further and further, you know, over. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of debate with Robert Thurman about, you know, is there an afterlife, is there not, you know, et cetera. And you talked about um, the sort of, you know, essentialism, right? Like on all, not on all sides, but, you know, a sort of saying this is it, you know, whereas like the scientists will say, you know, which is ridiculous, like neuroscience, you know, you know, the brain pathways and, you know, it's like, that's not answering the question, you know, but again, it's kind of getting at um, this attempt to come to something certain. And with your idea of sort of the transcendent, um, we also don't know that, I mean, in a sense of like ultimate, right? So you're just talking about on the sort of experiential level that we experience, like I appreciated what you're saying about like, you know, love and connection. And I mean, you know, we all do have these things that the scientists can't like, okay, great. We can track a brainwave of showing, you know, we've got oxytocin or, you know, all these things, but right. um, I guess, and then my, the other, and I know I'm totally rambling, but maybe you can find some something in all this. Cause I think it's sort of a, a difficult subject to kind of, you know, pin down um, if we need to pin down. Um, but so the Dalai Lama, right. You know, has now been talking, you know, the mind and life Institute, right. You know, for a long time now about science, you know, and the whole Buddhist idea of like, test it out, test it out yourself, sort of aligns with the scientific method. So, I mean, just to kind of anchor this somewhere, um, how about the Dalai Lama? Is it just a way to, well, the, both the, the Buddhist saying, test it, test it, but also just a way to kind of connect in with what's happening in the zeitgeist? Or what's your, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I know I've said a lot, but yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, First with Bachelor, mm -hmm. he, his uh, rap has changed radically mm -hmm. over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. Um, in his earlier books, he, he talked about uh, the essence of Buddhism being the imagination. Mm -hmm. well, what happened to that? <laughs> and in earlier books, he said that he was an agnostic, not an atheist. Right. And uh, and in in this book, you know, I it's not so hard to see if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. He's a new atheist, you know. Hmm. Christopher, he must have run into them at some uh, you know British gab fest, and Christopher Hitchens took him aside, and Dawkins took him aside, and they sort of says, "Here's what you should do: you should be a Buddhist atheist. Write a book about that. It'll you'll get all these gigs." Uh, <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yale, Yale University Press will publish your book. Um, you know, I mean, the new atheists uh, have a lot of uh, sway yeah, with correct. a certain a right. certain level of culture. And to me, he just decided he was the new atheist. The thing I don't understand is he writes a book called uh, Beyond Buddhism. Well, go ahead. Go beyond Buddhism, <laughs> but don't don't turn around and tell us that Buddhism is really science. You know, the nerve. Uh, and he also says other outrageous things like uh, we don't really need the the four noble truths. Mm -hmm. uh, twenty five hundred years of Buddhism, twenty five hundred years of Buddhism, where everybody starts with the four dang noble truths. And uh, Stephen Batchelor says, "Now nah, we don't need that." Mm -hmm. Right there is a second part of your question. I don't think I answered. Um. Yeah, I mean, I don't see him sort of using focusing as much on science as much as sort of the philosophical, you know, following the arguments out. I mean, he was a Korean monk and a Tibetan monk, right? So he's got like the credibility, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, but just the sort of, um, I don't know, I guess just his idea of like stripping it down, stripping it down, you know, like mm -hmm. Nagarjuna, who's this 
you know, very well-known early Buddhist philosopher. Um, people don't know about him. He, you know, it's about like the nothingness of nothingness and stripping it out, stripping it out. So it seems like that's something that he's trying to do. But again, it's gotten kind of like, I mean, the nothing of nothing of nothing has gotten, you know, really essential. But um, but the other part of my question is just about the Dalai Lama, you know, I mean, who, oh. you know, the Mind and Life Institute and the whole, yeah. you know, the science. I mean, Dalai Lama's dialogue with scientists, you know, it's. Yeah, I I, I don't have, you know, I know about the, the uh, Dalai Lama's occasional uh, comments about science and he has an arrangement with uh, Emory University for uh, Tibetan students to come over and study right. science. And uh, Emory is supposed to send Western students over and study um, uh, Buddhism, Buddhist culture, at least. Um, I, ha I was interviewed once by the, one of the people who run that program. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I said, OK, tell me how it's working. You got a lot of monks over, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, how many students are sending over? To, to to bed and he said well uh the program's a little unbalanced at present you know <laughs> so i have nothing to say about the dalai lama <laughs> you know <laughs> that's that's a great quote uh we've got another question from shell goldstein shell uh would you mind you, you had your hand up hi i'm wondering um what can you hear me okay yeah yep. Okay, great. I'm wondering what you make of the resurgence, the renaissance of uh, psychedelic-assisted therapies. That's funny. I don't know. We were just talking uh, with Peter uh, at the you know the story guy um, before the talk about that. It's weird <laughs> synchronicity. At any rate, um, I don't. I don't. I don't understand enough about what's going on with psychedelics as mental health therapy or microdosing and all that stuff, ketamine therapy. I, I, I just don't know anything about it. Um, and I, I, I don't see how it's uh, um, connected to Buddhism other than, you know, the old countercultural idea that, uh, that drug experiences can introduce you to, you know, like in Jimi mm -hmm. Hendrix's uh, Are You Experienced? It was okay. really, have you taken yeah. Have you taken drugs and seen the world for the way it really is and seen the other possibilities that we're missing out on? You know, um, Timothy Leary's uh, sort of rap. Um, my, my I, I, a, I don't know anything about it. Does that work? It's, it's a, chemi a chemically induced transcendence. Right. Get a taste of that. You it, it it's another way of getting there rather yeah. than I, through Buddhism, but right. to the same nation. Uh, you know, I had a couple of experiences uh, with uh, mescaline when I was a kid where, you know, we would sit on the beach and bang on a, a boy that had washed, washed ashore out in Jenner by Russian River. And uh, and I would sit there listening to the echo coming in. The, and I would and I, I said to myself, oh, so this is what consciousness raising is all about. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, I was digging it, but. Uh, I, I don't I don't do that stuff anymore and uh, I was never particularly persuaded by it but you know go with God <laughs> well there, there there is actually a huge upsurge um, of people being interested laws being changed even at uh, the recreational or self-exploration uh, level of people yeah. access psilocybin and mescaline yeah I, I've had too many bad experiences with uh, drugs too huh. Think that I should go there again. Um, so I'm perfectly content just to read books. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Are uh, any other questions? If you can, you can kind of hit your hand up uh, button on your Zoom situation. <laughs> you see another one? You can pop on there and just talk. right to your left on my screen. I can't see it, but if you have a question, just go ahead and speak up. This chat function seems to be unpopular in this group. <laughs> uh, oh, it was the, guy, the the first fellow that talked. Jensen. He wants to talk oh. again. Thank you very much. 
you know, at one point you were talking about how, um, you know, coming out of the counterculture and the, and the, the moving on to the Buddhism and, and the spirituality of it, the beauty of it, the part that is ineffable. And I kept thinking about Theodore Rojak. Absolutely. And, and I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on him. I, the, the phrase, the voice of one crying in the wilderness came, came to mind. But uh, Oh, my God, you've hit one of my favorites. Yeah. Such a smart man. Uh, Theodore Rozak was the uh, author of a of, of a book published in the late 60s, I think, called The Making of a Counterculture. And uh, my last book uh, was called uh, Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed, colon, an invitation, uh, 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 reimagining counterculture today. So... That book opens with a substantial quote from Razak. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, he, he was so good. I mean, he was solid. He looked at the counterculture and liked it, but he was so solid in the way he approached it. Now, nothing, nothing flamboyant. <laughs> he was a philosopher, you know. One more? Any other questions? No. Well, yeah. No, we're fantastic. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. much. Thank you so much. <laughs> Blessings. Blessings. Turn it back over to City Lights here. Well, gentlemen, thank you for that very engaging talk and gracing our virtual halls. I also want to thank everyone in the audience, also our friends at Melville House, one of our country's great indie booksellers. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, our publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So take care, everyone. Best for the new year to you. We hope to see you all again soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.